Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly, tribal animals, and when we live in small enough communities in which we know each person by name or at minimum by face, we are collaborative and we sustain everyone in our community. When I talk about stimulating thought, what I mean is hearing words that get us to think in a certain way or get us to think in a new way or get us to think because thinking is an important part of the human condition and it's an essential part of introspection. Introspection is looking within ourselves at ourselves. And this, for me, is a very important part of the human condition because I believe that really, in terms of how we live our lives, everything we need to know is already within us. But we must take the time to think about ourselves, to do that introspection in order to reach that inner wisdom that we all have. And I say it again, I believe that we all have the inner wisdom. We all have a moral compass. It's built into our DNA. We know what the right thing to do is. We know how to act. But we must go deep inside in order to find this wisdom, in order to allow ourselves to be the highest of our own angels within. By expanding consciousness, consciousness is beyond thinking. Consciousness is a way of connecting ourselves with what some people call the cosmos or the universe. Consciousness is the all-knowing. Consciousness is what Robert Heinlein called grokking. When we expand our consciousness, we see things that we don't ordinarily see. And we may feel things that we don't ordinarily feel. That is one of the reasons why, for thousands of years, human beings have done things to themselves in order to expand their consciousness. Whirling dervishes, for example, or the taking of various substances, for example, or, or meditating, for example. These are ways of expanding our consciousness. So the mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate your thought, to help expand your consciousness, and again, encourage community, because we are tribal animals, and we like to do things together. We like to chat. Conversation is important to us. In fact, when I interviewed uh, Daniel Butner, who you may remember was uh, given a commission by National Geographic magazine to find those places on the planet where people live the longest and the healthiest. And Dan Butner named those five areas Blue Zones. And what he did was he went to those areas 
and he extracted the principles that they share. And if you go online to Google and look up the Blue Zones, the nine principles, you'll see what those principles are that the five Blue Zones share. And one of them was socializing. Some of those people uh, in the Blue Zones chatted together. There was one group that chatted together on a weekly basis for 95 years since they were children. And Butner came away listing socializing as one of the critical variables to living a long and healthy life. And that's why the mission of Mind, Body, Health and Politics is to encourage community, tribal living together, whether it be in your neighborhood, whether it be on the the floor that you live in your apartment building, whether it be in some place where you go and have coffee on a regular basis or tea or whatever you have as a way of connecting with other people. That is essential for good health. Now, our guest today on Mind, Body, Health and Politics is Congressman Jared Huffman. Congressman Jared Huffman represents California's 2nd District, which spans the north coast of the state of California, from the Golden Gate Bridge, which, as you know, is right north of San Francisco, all the way to the Oregon border. And it includes Marin, Sonoma, Mendocino, Humboldt, Trinity, and Del Norte counties. It's a very long stretch of, of, uh, of ge- geography that Congressman uh, Huffman represents. Now, this, this interview today is part of a series I'm doing with government leaders. I've interviewed Governor Jerry Brown. I've interviewed Mendocino County Supervisor Ted Williams. I've interviewed Mendocino County Sheriff Matt Kendall. And today, I'm going to interview Congressman Jared Huffman. The reason I'm doing this is because we we live in an era in which distrust is rampant. We, We live in an era of disinformation where people are purposefully putting out mistaken information for some goal, be it to get elected, be it to demonize other people, be it to gain power, be it to gain money, but whatever the motivation, it's disinformation and it's mistaken information. And in some cases, it's outright lying. And we do know that we have come through an era of four years in which the president of the United States on a regular basis lied to the American public and lied to the world. This is very disruptive when the leader of the free world lies. It, it, it twists the minds of people because you don't know what you can believe and what you can't when somebody of that, of that stature tells lies and yet sometimes tells the truth. So we've got to scratch down. We've got to get to bare bones. We've got to find out who it is who's telling the truth, and who it is that's lying, spreading disinformation, and corrupting our minds. 
So I have purposely brought you people, three of whom of the four, that I personally know and personally have a great deal of trust in with regard to their integrity. Governor Brown is an honest man. He was an honest governor. We had no scandals in the Brown administration for 16 years. Remember, he was a historic governor. He was governor for eight years in his 30s, and then he was governor again for eight years in his 70s. No scandals. Why? Because Governor Jerry Brown told the truth, and to this day, he does tell the truth. And I know that because I consider myself his friend, and he is certainly my neighbor. So I brought him to you. And the same is true for Mendocino County Supervisor Ted Williams. He's a neighbor. I know him. Ted tells the truth. He calls it as he sees it. You can trust when you hear Ted Williams speak that he is speaking what he believes is the truth. And the same, I believe, is true for my friend, Sheriff Matt Kendall, the sheriff of Mendocino County. He's a straight man, a straight shooter. I didn't mean straight man in the sexual sense, by the way, although I, I believe he is, but that's not relevant. He, he, he speaks from his mind and his heart, and when he says something, you can believe it. So these are three people that I believe I can trust, and I bring them to you. Jared Hoffman, I do not know as a personal uh, friend, but I have read about him, and I have vetted him, and I have talked to him on the phone, and I've come to believe that he also is an honest man who is doing an honest job. He was first elected to uh, Congress in November of 2012, and he serves on the Committee on Natural Resources the Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure, and the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. In the 116th Congress, Jared Huffman chairs the Natural Resources Subcommittee on Water, Oceans, and Wildlife, with jurisdiction over federal projects, fisheries management, coastal zone and oceans policy, and wildlife and endangered species. This tells you something about who he is based on the committees on which he serves. These are the things that he's interested in. The ocean, wildlife, endangered species, uh, federal water projects. That, that's what holds his interest. He also founded the Congressional Free Thought Caucus to promote sound public policy based on reason, science, and moral values. That tells you something about him. Let me say it again. He founded a congressional caucus to promote sound public policy based on reason, science, and moral values while protecting the secular character of government and championing the value of freedom of thought worldwide. That tells you about Welcome who to my he body, is. Health and Politics, Congressman Jared Huffman. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Richard. You're very welcome. Uh, where are you right now? I am at my home in Marin County. I'll be heading back to uh, the Capitol in a few days, but right now we have what we call a, a committee work week, and uh, 
under COVID protocols, most of that committee work happens just like this online. Well, I have a lot of things to ask you about regarding uh, Mendocino County and your district in general. However, I would be remiss if I didn't start out by talking to you about where you were on January 6th of 2021. Yeah, quite a, quite a dark day, uh, I think, for all of us. But uh, on that day, I was in the Capitol. I was in my office in the Longworth building. And what may not have been clear to everyone who was tuning in around the country and uh, hearing about these events as they unfolded is there were very few members of Congress were actually in the House chamber. Because of the COVID rules, we were limited to about 11 per party. So most everyone else was in their offices, which are connected to the chamber through tunnels, uh, you know, so a few hundred yards away. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty compact capital complex. And that's where I was. I was on the fifth floor of the Longworth building and uh, watching the live feed uh, from the floor uh, as we began to hear about this mob approaching the Capitol. And then we began hearing about the security incursions and everything else that unfolded. So you're in your office in the Longworth building and you're on the fifth floor. Can you hear sounds from the street where you are? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In you... fact, uh, from from early that morning, as the as the mob began making its way down Pennsylvania Avenue, that there was a roar that just got louder and louder. And uh, well before uh, the security breach, we were already hearing sirens everywhere. We were starting to hear uh, explosions from uh, what I presume were flash grenades and other devices that, that were being set off to try to slow them down. And the vibration, the emotional vibration that was coming into your office from outside, was it ominous to you, sir? It was unlike anything I'd seen at the Capitol, yeah, because I could look out the window of my office and see folks, you know, running everywhere. Uh, you know, some of the uh, intensity was building uh, early that day. When I got up that morning, there were police everywhere. Uh, and, you know, my experience over the last eight years led me to assume that security would be up to whatever challenge would present that day. Uh, I had a false sense of security, it turns out. And uh, while I, I didn't feel particularly at risk in the moment, the more I learned over the next 24, 48 hours, the more I realized uh, it was a very, very dangerous time. And you're sitting in your office there, fifth floor of the Longworth building. You're watching this out the window. You're watching on television. Did you happen to see the president uh, at the time, the president of the United States, uh, say to the mob, I'll be going down to the Capitol with you? I was watching his speech uh, live when it happened from my office as well. Yeah, I did hear that. And uh, we, we had other indications. Uh, I mean, we had for days known that this whole thing was his idea. He selected January 6th for obvious reasons. Uh, this was his last Hail Mary attempt to prevent the certification of the Electoral College. And he summoned the crowd to Washington. He hosted the large gathering at the Ellipse uh, near the White House. He paid for it with his campaign account and put his own speakers forward, his family members, Rudy Giuliani. So this had the president's fingerprints all over it. Uh, even before he gave those fateful remarks. Watching it on TV, 
it looked as though when he was making that call and saying, I'm going to go down to the Capitol with you and you have to show strength, that there was also, in addition to his persona, a very large screen set up outside for this mob to see. Is that accurate, sir? You mean at the Ellipse near the White House? Where he was speaking, where he made oh, yeah. that announcement, I'm going to the Capitol with down the Capitol with you. Was there a very large screen set up out there where the people saw him as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So they heard him. They saw him. Of course, he was lying to them about walking with them to the Capitol, but um, they thought he was with them, uh, either literally or figuratively. And certainly they were taking their cues from him. So you're watching a historical moment, and it, it definitely a historical moment in, in the United States' uh, uh, 250-year history. When you heard him say, I will come down to the Capitol with you, can you recall what did you feel or what did you think inside yeah. when you heard the President of the United States say that? So there were so many aspects of his remarks that were... Um, combustible, inflammatory, incendiary. I, I wouldn't say that's the one that stood out the most, but it was one of many things that clearly were designed to animate this crowd, to send them on their way to storm the Capitol, to talk about you know, fighting like hell or you're not going to have a country if you don't fight like hell. And there's just really no mistaking what he said. I did note that one single time in this long, rambling incitement speech of his, he used the word nonviolent. Uh, but when a hundred other times you all but call for violence, um, it kind of renders that meaningless. Have you spoken to, had an opportunity uh, during this COVID pandemic to speak to some of your colleagues who were there at the Capitol while this was going on? And if so, what can you share with us about, and what are you at liberty to share with us about what it was like for them on a human emotional basis? Sure. Well, I was uh, communicating with some of them in real time by text message as the events were unfolding. And I did have colleagues who were both on the floor of the House chamber uh, and then several uh, more who were in the gallery above. They had gone down because this was a big historic event and they wanted to uh, be in the gallery to watch, even though they couldn't be on the floor. Well, that entire part of the Capitol, the, the floor of the chamber and the gallery, um, were the, the, that was the target for the mob. And uh, once the building was surrounded and the Capitol was breached, there was no way for them to get out. Um, and there was a very heroic um, evacuation of those who were in the House chamber. Uh, it's a little easier to get from the House chamber out a hallway into one of the secure rooms downstairs in the Capitol. Uh, but the folks upstairs in the gallery um, were really vulnerable because there was no way out. All the stairways led down to the mob and the mob was making its way up those stairs and trying to you know, break into the gallery itself. So that, that was the worst of it. Those who were in the gallery, and they were the last ones mm -hmm. to be liberated, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, by the, the troops. Sometime uh, before this event, uh, people were asking me, they said, why is it that you think that the Republicans, so many Republicans, are still going with him? Uh, don't they have a conscience? I mean, they must have a conscience. They must see what he's been doing for four years. What is your thinking on it? And, and I said, well, you know, the obvious thing that's being told us 
is that they're afraid they'll be primaried out, that if they go against him, they will lose their jobs because he's threatening he'll, he'll not. But I don't think that's enough. And I said, when I put myself in the consciousness of a mob ruler, which he acts like, I think the other thing that he might be threatening them with, but I don't have evidence of it, is he may be threatening their families. Well, within days after that, uh, Scaramucci, who, had been, who worked for him for something like 10 days, went on national TV, I don't know if you happen to see it, and he said, my family has been threatened, my children have been threatened. And now we're hearing in, in, in recent days that other uh, Republicans have come out and acknowledged that their families have been threatened. What's your take on this? Please share your thoughts and feelings about this particular behavior. Well, that's all very accurate, and it's it's a very real thing. Uh, several of our Republican colleagues who uh, ended up uh, not voting for impeachment uh, privately said they wanted to support impeachment, but literally felt that they and their families would be targeted and, and harmed. Uh, so that tells you that this is a real thing. We have all kinds of members of co uh, Congress and others who have crossed this president uh, and can tell the story of what happened to them. Uh, it's it's a, a vicious and violent and immediate reaction by Trump's base. And it's a very real thing. It's part of the glue that you know holds this cult of personality together. But people in the mob, they don't act independently. People in the mob historically act because they are being persuaded or pushed or advised towards the action. And so there have to be leaders of this, and they have to be leaders from high on up. And Nancy Pelosi today went on national television, and she said that your colleagues, and possibly you yourself, you'll tell us in a moment, she has evidence that your colleagues are being threatened with physical violence, not only by the mob, but by other members of Congress. Can you shed some light on that, please? Yeah, I haven't been threatened with, directly at least, with violence by colleagues in Congress, but uh, I don't know a single colleague, uh, certainly not a Democratic colleague, that hasn't had very ugly violent threats, including death threats against them, and in many cases, uh, them and their family, and that includes me. I've been around now for uh, quite a while. I'm in my 80s. I do not remember in my lifetime this number of, uh, of elected officials saying that they are in fear of violence either from the mob or from, worse yet, their own colleagues. Uh, yeah. Does that match your experience? I don't remember anything like it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very close to it now. And, um, can confirm that um, it, it is something that has shaped our national politics for the last four years. It's part of how all of these Republican members of Congress, who never liked Donald Trump, by the way, he was not their choice. They didn't like him at first. Many of them swore that they would oppose him and warned of how terrible he would be for the country. Um, but they all kind of one by one um, relented and got on board. And I think it's a combination of things that led them to that. One is what Trump unleashed uh, out there in, the, in their base is really powerful. You know, all of this 
white grievance politics uh, and anger and hate and division and scapegoating and othering that was, you know, the feature of Trumpism is really potent. Uh, it, it animates people to vote and to go online and to get active. And I think congressional Republicans quickly determined that this was something they couldn't stop and they better find a way to get on board with it and get right with it. So they did almost to a person they fell in line. But I think the other thing that has been stirred up in our country, and I'm not a mental health professional, but I have uh, studied enough of human history and uh, anthropology to know that there's a violent strain in the homo sapiens species, always has been. And uh, sometimes it just needs, uh, you know, a demagogue or something else to stir it up. And uh, we are not that far away from all manner of ugliness and violence at any given moment. When I studied, studied uh, social psychology in graduate school, uh, one of the things they taught us was that throughout all of history, when you push down the lower class, if we break it up into, as the sociologists do, they break us up into nine groups, you know, lower, middle, and upper lower class, lower, yeah. middle, and upper middle class and lower middle and upper upper class, right? Nine groups. That when you push down the three lower, the groups in the lower class, and you push down two of the middle class, the lower middle and the middle middle. So you're now pushing five classes down socioeconomically. Yeah. It will undoubtedly lead to civil unrest. And that's what they and that's what they taught me over fifty years ago. Throughout yeah. all of history, when you do that kind of squelching, there will be civil unrest because there's only a certain amount of pushing that you can do until there are going to be riots, whether they're food riots or whether they're shelter riots or whether they're sickness riots, but they're going to riot because they're going to get desperate. Yeah. And to a certain extent, that's what's going on in our country that we have created a socioeconomic stratification starting with Nixon going on for quite a while now, haven't we? Oh, I think that that is part of the, the context here, absolutely. But, you know, there's lots of times when the, the elements of something really combustible are there. Um, it, it's when you add a demagogue uh, who just provides the rocket fuel for all that with mm -hmm. hate, vision, and scapegoating. I mean, this is what happened in Germany in the 1930s. It usually comes along in the form of a big lie that scapegoats some group against another. Yes. And, uh, you know, in Germany, the, the big lie was that Germany lost World War I because of traitorous Jews. And it snowballed from there. Uh, you can see something very, very similar, many threads of something similar in Trumpism. Yes. So... Let's talk solutions for a moment on this issue, and then I want to get to uh, your local district and what's happening here locally uh, in the county in which I live, Mendocino County. I happen to be here in Fort Bragg, California, by the way. It's in Mendocino County. For those of you listening around the world, Mendocino County uh, and the district that uh, Congressman Huffman represents is in Northern California. His district uh, goes from Marin County, which is not far from San Francisco, up through the top of Humboldt County. Is that right, or do you go further? Even further, all the way to the Oregon border. So all the way to, okay, so it's a very long strip, if you can picture it on the map, going from the Oregon border all the way down the coastline to uh, almost to San Francisco. And uh, how far inland do you go? 
Not far. It's a narrow strip of the counties uh, along what you've just described. Okay, so that's the area that he represents. We're going to have one, one more question on this topic and move on. And the question is, solution, sir. What do we do when you and your colleagues are being threatened with physical violence by a group led by an American Don Carleone? Yeah. Well, I think first thing, uh, you can't let them win. Uh, We know that when bullies prevail, when people just sort of back down or look the other way, uh, it just rewards that behavior and you see a lot more of it. So I I believe it was critically important that within hours of this mob, uh, you know, succeeding temporarily and taking control of the Capitol, they did. Uh, But uh, we got them out Mm -hmm. and we were back on the floor of the House and we finished the job that night. Uh, We certified the Electoral College and ensured the peaceful transition of power uh, to the rightful winners of the presidential election. That sounds really good. But what about your colleagues in the Republican Party who are feared for their families? What do we do for them so that they can vote their conscience rather than vote their fear? Yeah, I don't know what I can do for them. Uh, I think they're going to have to, uh, on a case-by-case basis, decide whether, um, you know, fear uh, or fear of losing their next election or whatever it may be uh, is more important than the oath they take and standing up and doing the right thing. Uh, And these decisions are not always easy. Uh, You know, there have been moments that called for profiles and courage throughout our country's history. And I think this is one of those moments all of us are called to to really keep that bigger purpose in mind and, and just do the right thing. Some of them are doing it, by the way. You know, I have colleagues like uh, Adam Kinziger, a Republican from Illinois, a real up-and-comer who's a talented and and, uh, very dynamic um, young guy, maybe ending his career by voting to impeach Donald Trump and and very vocally calling out uh, this violence, this bad behavior, the lies about the election. Um, You know, I hope he's successful. I hope there's still room within the Republican Party for someone to just tell the truth and do the right thing. Uh, But in today's politics, he's most people would say he's taken an enormous risk. Well, he is taking an enormous risk with regard to his career. The other question I'm asking is to what extent he's taking an enormous risk with regard to violence against himself and his family. We know yeah. in Italy, for example, that the mafia have killed many prosecutors and they have killed many journalists and they have you know, moved into the country. And many people believe that the country of Mexico is a narco uh, a traficante uh, a country now because they have moved in and killed so many politicians. And that is what is deeply concerning to many of us, sir, that, that uh, it could happen in this country if you get enough politicians afraid of a mob leader, they will roll. They'll roll yeah. over in the wrong direction. Well, I think they've done that. I think one party at least has done that uh, to a large extent. And I, uh, I celebrate the exceptions to that rule, uh, but overwhelmingly, that is what they've done. Well, maybe someday if you have the time and my, I have the privilege, we can continue that conversation. For now, let's talk about matters here on the coast having to do with this uh, really uh, terrible uh, pandemic of COVID-19. Um, With regard to testing here on the coast, can you shed any light on our future with regard to the availability 
of testing in Mendocino County or in your area? Maybe we go from your area in general down to our our county. Can you shed some light on that? Because that's one of the questions that people have all the time. Will there be more testing? Can we get testing? And why are they asking about testing? Because they're being told that they won't all get vaccinated for at least maybe another 8, 10, 9, nine months, 12 months. That means yeah. there's a, a long road ahead of wearing masks, social distancing, and washing their hands. And during that time, they want to know if they can get tested. Yep. So what I can say is that I think our testing capacity will continue to increase. Uh, we are testing a lot more today than we were, you know, even one or two or three months ago. Um, and as we vaccinate more people in the population, obviously those are people who won't need to get tested. And so that increasing testing capacity can be focused more and more on those who are at risk. Uh, and, you know, the, the good news that I bring from Washington is that we finally have an administration that's willing to use this very powerful law called the Defense Production Act, so that as we run into shortages of, uh, you know, whatever the equipment may be uh, for testing and other purposes, uh, we can commandeer manufacturing capacity anywhere in this country and solve the problem very quickly. Uh, we, we have an administration that's actually going to take ownership of this issue, be accountable for it, and use the tools that we have rather than just leaving everybody to fend for themselves, which is what, frankly, the past year has been like. And as, as the reason that there has not been adequate testing here in Mendocino County, political because of the former president's reluctance to get on board? Is that really what we're dealing with? It's, it's partly that. Um, you know, you've seen various bottlenecks at different times. At one point, uh, it was some of the devices that are needed for the testing, the swabs or other parts of it. Uh, at other points, it has been the lab capacity. And uh, even though you can get a test, Many people have had to wait five, six, seven days to get the test results. That renders it pretty useless. So um, our ability to get those tests not only taken, but results back to people within a few hours, which is what we desperately need, um, is still not there. Uh, and that's where things like the Defense Production Act you know, come into play. Uh, we are going to have to use those kind of extraordinary authorities to make sure that we never have a shortage of the, the collection kits or make to make sure that we have the lab capacity to meet whatever demand is necessary for these test results. So you're, you're at least cautiously, if not more than that, optimistic that there will be a ramping up and a distribution of testing uh, to your district that you represent. I, I'm certain of it. I, I can't, um, quantify it for you necessarily, uh, right. but I can tell you all of these things are the obvious answers to the problems that we've been battling, and we have new leadership that is going to get it right. And what can you share with us about the providing of PPE to hospital workers in your district that you represent? Same thing. Uh, we have had occasional shortages of gowns and uh, gloves and certainly masks, um, and everyone is kind of fending for themselves uh, on the global market to try to get these things. Um, and so uh, it, it's one where I've been calling for many, many months, actually for the better part of a year, 
for the Defense Production Act to, to be invoked, it will now be invoked. And I, I think we're going to have to give it some time because, uh, you know, it's one thing to, to say I'm invoking the Defense Production Act. It's another thing to invoke it and then actually start making gloves and masks and gowns and the other things we need. But um, the, the fix is coming. I, I'm very certain of that. And the funds are there. We've, we've appropriated the dollars for it. From my perspective, when we are invaded and my neighbors are getting injured, they're getting hospitalized, and they're getting killed, I consider that we're at war. And I personally don't differentiate on the size of the invader, be it a microscopic invader that injures and kills, or a life-sized, human being-sized that injures and kills. If we are at war, I have never heard in the history of our country where a country declares war on us or we declare war and all 50 states are supposed to fight independently. Yeah. We've always fought as a country. But the, yep. but the former right. president... Can you imagine, pardon? Can you imagine FDR the, saying that this day will live in infamy, now everyone's uh, you know, on their own, good luck? Exactly. Uh, that's, uh, that's essentially what President Trump did. He declared it. He declared himself a wartime president. He wanted to bask in, you know, kind of the the historic significance of that for his own ego, I suppose. Uh, and then he got bored with it uh, because it was difficult and it wasn't going well. And he just stopped talking about it. Uh, it's really, I think, his, history will show one of the more disgraceful uh, failures of leadership we've ever seen in this country. And if you want to compare it to a war, uh, we've lost more people to this war than to any other war in our history, other than, I think, the Civil War, more than World War II at this point. Fauci has gone on record, Dr. Fauci has gone on record as saying that thousands, tens of thousands, and perhaps hundreds of thousands of lives could have been saved if we had gone against this as a united country. Yeah. From your perspective, does that mean, does that indicate that, that the former president, you notice I don't use his name, and yeah. the, uh, there, there's a reason I don't use his name. I don't use his name because any mention of his name from my psychological perspective enhances his brand in some way. And sometimes I think it's all about his brand and nothing else. That's all he cares about. It's you know a version of I don't care what you say about me as long as you spell my name right. But the, 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 the former president, to what extent, if any, do you think he is liable for crimes against humanity for the deaths in the United States as a result of saying to the states, you all do it on your own, and as, as a result of not saying to the country, mask up and social distance so you can save lives. Yeah, so crimes against humanity actually is a term with some legal significance. I, I don't know that his failures rise to the level uh, of those kind of international crimes, but I do know that he has moral culpability and you know, look no further than the interviews that he gave as this pandemic was unfolding to a Washington Post reporter where he acknowledged how deadly this was, how transmissible it was, but he said he wanted to downplay it. Uh, there was a deliberate plan on his part to uh, try to lie his way through this, and he spread misinformation at every turn, uh, and then you know, really created the resistance to science that has been one of our biggest problems in taming this pandemic. 
Uh, on, a, on a personal note, I, I contacted a class action lawsuit that has offices in Washington, D.C., uh, with the notion of retaining them to, to uh, take a class action suit against Trump for the damages to the Capitol uh, based on his uh, inciting the group to do that. Uh, they're yeah. looking into it. There might be something there, but uh, you know, a small piece of this entire thing. I, I believe something needs to be done, and if the Republicans are going to turn down the impeachment, uh, it's, he, he gets to walk free and gets to run again. Uh, coming back, I keep it's, it's such a big deal, you know, this terrible thing that's going on in our country with violence against uh, against our leaders like yourself that we keep coming back to it. I want to talk more now about vaccinations. What can you tell us about vaccinations that are coming down the pike in your district? What can people look forward to uh, in terms of vaccinations? Yeah, thanks for that question. I was just on a Zoom meeting uh, with Dr. Fauci and with the Biden administration's new uh, COVID czar, uh, Jeff Seintz, uh, and others that are on this team. And um, what I am being told is that, um, that there's sort of several uh, pillars to their plan right now. Uh, it involves certainly increasing the supply of vaccine. And we know that that's been frustrating. And so there are um, new contracts being entered into. There is an effort to do an accounting of the vaccines that have already been purchased, but literally on its way out the door, the Trump administration, sorry to mention his name, but um, <laughs> they, they hadn't even fully accounted for where all the stuff was. They had just sort of airdropped it into states and communities, you know, in, in ways we don't fully understand yet today. Uh, and so trying to get our handle around that. And, and then again, uh, exploring using that Defense Production Act, that very powerful tool to bring new pharmaceutical manufacturing capacity online uh, as needed. There's also new vaccines coming. Uh, and so uh, right now, uh, the constraints with the Pfizer and uh, with Moderna uh, are going to be alleviated as we bring a third and fourth vaccine online. We think that those uh, permissions are going to be granted in the days and weeks ahead. So that's the supply piece. But then you also need places to administer the vaccines. You need people to administer the vaccines. And there's there's finally a national plan to address that part of it as well. Uh, FEMA is going to bring a billion dollars uh, and all of its mobilization expertise and resources to opening community vaccination centers. You're going to see efforts to have mobile vaccination centers in rural communities that are harder to reach. That should be welcome news on the coast of Mendocino County. And then the people to do this work, um, we are going to need to relax some cross-licensing rules that allow folks to go across state lines, at least during the period of this pandemic, uh, and fill that need. And the Department of Health and Human Services is doing that uh, right now. And then there's one more piece of this plan that I'll mention, uh, and that is making sure that um, we have really clear communications to the country. No more will you see the president and Dr. Fauci kind of stepping all over each other or scientists being muzzled and told, you know, what they can and cannot say or what shows they can go on. Uh, so it's, it's really a refreshing change. And while it, it may continue to take a while to get the, the volume of vaccines we all want to see accessible to all of us close to home. Uh, it's coming. My, my takeaway in listening to you is that we've gone through a very dark period in American history, but there's now light 
at the end of the tunnel, and some of it is even shorter here uh, within the tunnel. I, I, I couldn't can... agree more. And, and you know, it's, it's refreshing for me also that they're not just trying to check a box and say, you know, we will do 100 million uh, vaccines in the first 100 days. And, you know, we hope we beat that goal, by the way. Uh, but, but they're committed to doing it in a way that addresses equity as we hit that goal. Because one of the problems is uh, you've got communities of color that started uh, this terrible journey with the pandemic with pre-existing conditions because they're often located in places where they're close to pollution and have other adverse health conditions. And then they were adversely impacted by the pandemic because they work a lot of the essential jobs and don't have the luxury of you know, sheltering at home and doing other things that, that many of us have been able to do to protect ourselves. So as we go forward, it's not good enough to simply say, you know, we're going to have a bunch of drive-through vaccination centers when many of the hardest hit communities, people don't even have a car. Uh, we're going to have to make sure that we work through the Indian Health Service and work through community health clinics and do other uh, strategies to bring the vaccine to those communities so that we address the equity as we hit our targets. Last week, I interviewed Mendocino County Supervisor Ted Williams, uh, who spoke in my opinion, with great integrity and, uh, and brutal honesty. And part of the brutal honesty was that he told me and us, our listeners, that the county is in a situation where, like all businesses, expenses are increasing every year. Everybody has to face that. Mm -hmm. He also said that income is not increasing and, if anything, could be going down some. And anybody who's in business knows that the most important part of business in terms of staying in business is the relationship between income and expense. And if your expenses go up and your income doesn't, you're going to go out of business. So that's what he's telling us about Mendocino County. Can you comment on that, please, and, and uh, uh, anything you might do to shed some light on it or some direction or just any kind of comments would be appreciated. Well, I'm sure the supervisor is right about that. If you think about the economy of Mendocino County and, and much of the rest of my district, travel and tourism, uh, the outdoor economy, um, these are kind of what make a lot of it tick. Uh, when you think about even specific industries like the fishing industry, for example, a lot of their products uh, are sold through restaurants and restaurants are really struggling right now. And so you, you just have... So many aspects of the economy, especially in the North Coast, uh, that are just vastly constricted right now. And that means the income, of course, is not going to come in. Uh, and meanwhile, all of those expenses, your rent, your utilities, everything else, they don't just stop. They don't go down to match the drop in income. So I think the supervisor is exactly right. And that's, that's a, a lot of hardship that we're going to have to all work together to address. One of the things he said with regard to this income and expense relationship is that it goes back much further than the pandemic. He cited Proposition 13, which put a cap on property taxes, saying that when that cap was put on, that was really devastating to the county because it's the major source of income. I, I don't. Yeah, know. we're getting into local government finance a little bit, but uh, okay. that is correct. Uh, Prop 13 has had a long-standing draining effect on local governments, and it was masked for a number of years because we had these 
redevelopment funds that, that used to sort of backfill a lot of that loss of revenue, and then they went away. So I don't envy the task of a county supervisor, especially one in, in a, a place that's struggling, like yes. Mendocino County, and, and trying to balance that budget. I have uh, two questions in, in my mind right now, and one of them is, what else might you want to share right now with your constituents who are listening? that we haven't covered well, on any yeah. topic whatsoever. Well, thank you for that. We're, we've talked about some of the things that uh, uh, cause our anxiety to soar because these are, you know, dark days that we've been talking about, January 6th and some of the other events of the Capitol. Uh, it's very historic, very, uh, very much a test of our republic. Uh, but I think there's also reasons to be really excited and hopeful and uh, just looking at the last few days and what this new administration has rolled out uh, in its climate plans, it's unbelievable and refreshing. Uh, he's put great people in the right positions in the government. He's been consistent in always naming the climate crisis as one of the top two, three, or four priorities that have to be tackled with urgency. And now he's taking executive action and calling for uh, other legislative action to actually deliver on his promises. So uh, can't tell you how pleased I am. One of the opportunities that opens up is something that I've been working uh, with the, the Mendocino residents uh, along the coast since I got to Congress on, and that is permanent protection against offshore drilling. Um, he's put a temporary stop to this drill everywhere plan from the Trump administration that had threatened our, our coast. Um, we now have an opportunity to not only I guess, take a breath because temporarily at least we're, we're okay, but pass that permanent protection that we really need uh, going forward. And, and, you know, I think we can do that for the Arctic. I think we can do it for the East coast. The moratorium he's declared applies to all federal public lands as well. So inland uh, fossil fuel development. And I think that's just going to be a sea change, sending a, a strong market signal for clean energy, uh, and also kind of a wake-up call that these fossil fuel companies um, who have had impunity for so long um, are, are going to have to get with it. They're going to have to become clean energy companies. Last but not least, a question from the psychologist in me. How's your job? What's it like <laughs> for you? Really, tell us, what's it like for you? you? You live in Marin County on one edge of the country, you work in Washington, D.C. a lot of the time on the other edge of the country. You have a family. You commute back and forth by plane. How's your job? What's it like for you? Share some of the personal aspects of the commute and working far away and, and how it affects you. You forgot the, pack, the fact that I have no job security. i got to reapply for my job every two years. It's so. critical. Thank you for pointing that out. Absolutely. How many of us in the world have to look for a new job or sign up again every two years? That certainly is a, That's very important. And it's a really strange interview process as well. But uh, <laughs> it, is a, it is a job unlike any other. And in a moment like this, um, you know how fraught our politics are, how unpleasant they can be, frankly, um, and, and how um, unproductive Congress can seem. It can, it can be really, really frustrating. Uh, but I will say, uh, kind of offsetting that frustration is the incredible importance of being in the arena in a moment like this. This is uh, history being made uh, in real time. 
the decisions that we make on all of these crises that, that we've been talking about, not just the pandemic and the economic crisis and the racial injustice, uh, but the climate crisis and income inequality and all of it, um, it's so consequential. And I feel um, both energized uh, and also a, a real heavy burden of responsibility to represent all of these great communities in the arena at a moment like this. Um, it keeps me going uh, because I know it's really important and a lot of people are counting on me. Uh, and that in itself is a reward because it feels very purposeful. Well, I wish you the best. I hope you stay safe, as safe as possible. Thank you very much for joining us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of all of our listeners. I feel like you spoke very straightforwardly, and that's what we need in our political leaders, just straightforward, honest talk, and then we can all pull together and make it happen as a good country. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Enjoy talking with you. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, with special thanks to our producer, Charlie Deist, without whom this program would not be possible. Please join me again next week at 9 o'clock, Tuesday morning, 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. I look forward to your all joining. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.